You're listening to the Satanic Temple Ministries Religious Services. In each service, ministers of Satan discuss a single topic related to Satanic religious life. Services are held twice a week on Tuesday and Saturday. For more information, go to satanicministry.com. I am Minister Fel Phoenix, and at the time of this air- the airing of this service, today is the 17th of December, 2023, and our topic today is grief. What do we owe our community? I do want to give everybody the brief warning that there may be some things said or discussed in today's service that viewers may be uncomfortable with or even triggered by. Discussing death is never easy, and we all handle our grief pretty differently. So I've asked my panelists that are going to be with me today to be raw and real with all of us. And so I do expect things to get a little bit emotional. If you need to step away, feel free. Let's start today's service with our invocation. Let us stand now, unbowed and unfettered by arcane doctrine, born of fearful minds in darkened times. Let us embrace the Luciferian impulse to eat of the tree of knowledge and dissipate our blissful and comforting delusions of old. Let us demand that individuals be judged for their concrete actions, not their fealty to arbitrary social norms or illusory categorizations. Let us reason our solutions with agnosticism in all things, holding fast only to that which is demonstrably true. Let us stand firm against any and all arbitrary authority that threatens the personal sovereignty of one or all. That which will not bend must break, and that which can be destroyed by truth should never be spared its demise. It is done. Hail Satan. So today we're talking about grief. And it seems like we have, as a community at least, been talking about grief more and more these days. Every conversation that we seem to have with one another is tinged with at least a little bit of it. And long discussions about it have been prevalent more than ever before. It's an interesting topic for me personally. I've never shied away from grief, but I've also never really embraced it. See, it was about two years ago this February, I lost my oldest brother pretty suddenly and unexpectedly. My middle older brother, so the one above me and below him, he was at the time and still is living with me, and he never really had any experience with death. We were both pretty inconsolable. Our brother was a huge part of our lives, but I started to notice as I looked around that it wasn't really just me or just my brother that was grieving. My oldest brother was a socialite. Well, at least as much as one of us can be. He was a jokester. He was super friendly, big, fluffy teddy bear. And he had this smile and face that really just made you want to get to know him. He was popular. Or as popular as a nerd can be anyway. He was engaged. We have other siblings. I mean, he even had a little girl. And his daughter was at that kind of awkward school age where everybody was her friend. And so playmates meant inviting half the class. Everybody in the little town in Texas knew him, and they were all grieving. I wanted to isolate. That's how I process things. I wanted to hole up inside of myself, but I had people calling me or texting me or whatever to see how I was doing and how I was handling it. And, of course, I felt sort of a duty or responsibility to his widow and daughter. There was a sense of needing to be there, to grieve with them as a community or a family, and to have empathy and compassion for them, even if it was slowly destroying me inside to have to be so present. Ever since that day, I kind of find myself asking more and more, where is the line? At what point should I stop showing empathy and compassion for others and start instead showing it for myself? When... Where is the line between being selfish and having self-preservation? And when is the time to start healing? 
So I'm going to go ahead and start this conversa conversation off by introducing my two amazing panelists and allowing them each just a moment or two to kind of explain what moment or situation brought them and that they'll most likely be referring to in today's conversation. So I'm going to go ahead and start with Minister. Go ahead and start with Minister Renard. She'd like to go ahead. Thank you. So my name is Renard Sear. I'm a minister out of West Michigan. Uh, my wife, Larissa Wolf, and I helped found TST West Michigan. And then Larissa went on to join International Council to take on responsibilities in Satan Ops, to help found the Satanic Temple Mounted Color Guard, and really to be involved at many levels in the organization. About a year and a half ago, I woke up and she had passed away during the night. I got out of bed and found her dead. There was no warning. There was no symptoms that we'd recognized. And I found myself in a situation of having lost the person that I had been with for 22 years and recognizing that there was a massive community that she was a part of that I was going to have to deal with. And that was the challenge that I faced. But we'll get more into that with the questions. Thank you so much for joining us today, Renard, and for being willing to share your story. I really do appreciate your willingness to come forward yet again and share your life and even your pain with us. And I know this conversation is going to be a bit difficult. On that note, I do want to go ahead and introduce Minister David White. He's one of our he's going to be our first time panelist here. And I really, really do appreciate that. So, David, if you'd like to go ahead and introduce yourself and. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm Minister David White. I'm coming from Kansas City, Missouri. Um, so the grief I'm talking about today is in relation to the death of my father. He passed away this past September, um, right at the beginning of the month. Um, it turned into a random hospital visit from burning himself on his birthday. He uh, had an oxygen mask on and decided he was going to light a birthday cigar. Got third degree burns to his face. Um, so he was in the hospital, you know, that's a 14 hour drive back down to Atlanta. So I was kind of monitoring the situation from from Missouri and catching flack a lot from my family for not going and visiting them at the time. And so throughout the stay being burned and just trying to heal up and complaining about, you know, not being able to breathe, which we thought was normal. You know, he has COPD and he had heart failure. So um, and he was a bigger guy. So breathing problems, being in the hospital is kind of normal. And um, they finally did some scans and decided, uh, discovered that he had a 14 centimeter mass on his liver that was pressing up into his lungs and into his heart. Um, from the moment of discovering that, um, it just became, you know, became a, what are we going to do? What are we going to do with the situation? Or are we going to go through chemo? Um, Fast forward maybe three or four days, and I'm getting a phone call um, basically telling me that he's got a couple of hours 
So I'm packing and I'm trying to get down as fast as I can. And before I can even get out of the state, I get another phone call that he's passed away. Um, so I continue down to the South and being from the South, all of my family is deeply religious, deeply Southern Baptist and evangelists. And um, so a lot of the things I'll talk about tonight is probably just my reaction to being in that situation. And, you know, other than my wife being kind of alone and not of that faith and of that belief in, in all the messages that I received that definitely were not comforting, even if they were intended to be. So. I'm so sorry for your experience with that, David. I know, I know how difficult that can be. And I'm really, really appreciative that you decided to come in and join us for this panel. I know it's a really important topic to me. I know it's really important to you and Bernard as well. Um, and then to offer just the slightest bit of backstory on my own, I mentioned my brother and he, uh, my brother had a very minor heart attack. And whenever he went into the hospital, they said that he may have had some stroke-like symptoms and they gave him a CT scan. My brother uh, said he felt fine. And then they found what they assumed to be a very large-ish blood clot in his brain about the size of a thumbnail. And when they went in to surgically remove it, they then pulled out something the size of a golf ball. So he went into uh, convulsions and they put him into a medically induced coma. After about three weeks, uh, it was my responsibility to pull the plug. And it was a very difficult situation. I was very isolated from my family after that. So that's why I'm here today and why I'm leading this panel. So I do have a series of questions for my panelists here. And I do plan on answering most of them myself as well, just so we can all kind of have this really tough conversation and in time where I feel it is very prevalent. Now that we know what grief is at the forefront of our minds as panelists and myself, uh, I'm very well aware of just how difficult some of these questions may be. And because I believe in that kind of equal treatment, that's why I wanna offer my response first before I pass it off to whichever of my panelists feels inspired to talk about it. So my first question, what kind of community did you find yourself surrounded by after the passing of your loved one? I feel like this is really important. And for myself, I it was kind of an absence of community. I found myself instead surrounded by a bunch of people who ostracized me. And I had to kind of deal with that complicated aspect of grief, uh, especially when I just wanted to isolate. So it was very, very difficult for me. But I do know that I share a lot of pain with both of my panelists. So if one of you would like to... Um, Minister Renard, would you go ahead? Of course. Thank you. Um, community. I had the very good fortune of being in the middle of a community that was very supportive. And they were also suffering as well. Everybody liked Larissa. Everybody cared for her. She had, she'd worked for it. She had worked to be a friend. She had decided that she was going to be somebody who was trusted. Who, when you said, hey, I need somebody who can support me, you would think of her. That was her goal. And the community appreciated it greatly. The challenge I faced was this was my loss as well. And how do I balance a community?
community that's lost versus my own loss. Now, the situation was alleviated some when it was asked why hadn't executive ministry or leadership made an announcement or announced a memorial and Lucian explained to people because I hadn't said it was okay yet that they weren't going to do anything until and unless I gave the go-ahead and said it was okay. That's meant a lot because they gave me the distance to decide how much I had to share. Now, as far as the close community, I wasn't allowed to be alone for about two weeks. There was always someone over, whether it was family or friends, you know, everyone who is a friend but is actually family. They knew I was in trouble. They knew how bad I was taking it, and they weren't going to leave me alone in case I decided to do something stupid. So for that, and I realize this is a different experience than many people, but I am always grateful to our community, and I was glad my community was there for me. Thank you. Absolutely. And a huge shout out to your community for that. Hail West Michigan, hail the family and friends, and hail Satan Bam. Uh, Leave Minister out Hayden David. Detroit. Oh. <laughs> uh, Minister David, did you want to go ahead and share your experience with the type of community you found yourself surrounded by? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, I mean, my immediate community was obviously the the floor that I hit when they called me, and then the 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 traffic, the fourteen hour drive to Georgia. That, so everybody on the road was kind of my community and just needed to get out of my way. Um, then the community I found myself in was, you know, a, a giant group of family that I haven't spoken to in five to six years. Who, as far as they knew, or any good times or any okay times, I didn't exist. But somehow I I seem to exist now that we're at a funeral and at a viewing. Um, deeply religious. I mean, I wasn't allowed to watch Nickelodeon as a kid when I visited these people. So I mean, you know, extreme as far as I was concerned, uh, and still am. Um, everything felt rushed, and 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 so when I got down there, I mean, within, within a day or two, we were at a viewing, and the plans were being made, and I didn't know if I'd even be able to go and view him. Um, but I, I, my, thankfully, my wife was there because my immediate reaction to most of this was I just completely blanked out and went on autopilot. I couldn't make a decision for myself whether it was what I was going to wear or where we were going for food and, you know, someone would say, what do you want to eat? Where do you want to go? And I just, I would look at her. So I'm really thankful for her, but outside of her, it was people arguing about who was going to pay for the services or the viewing. We didn't even have a service. I mean, who was going to pay for the cremation? Who was going to, you know, I have family members that are millionaires that were asking me if I had, you know, $3,800. Um, so I felt like, you know, we're sitting in the we're sitting in the mortuary place in the office kind of signing paperwork and I'm having to make decisions I never thought I'd have to make, especially so suddenly. And then 
uh, people are having side conversations about money. And I'm just, I want to go see my dad. I want to go view him. So um, when they would pay attention to me, it was, you know, hey, it's okay because he's in a better place now. Or, you know, it, this is all part of a plan and you just, you're just hurting right now. You can't see it, but it's it's all a part of a bigger picture. And that's, you know, I, I think, you know, for the most part, I'm, I'm a live and let live kind of a person when it comes to religion. You know, you do your thing, keep it out of schools and out of, you know, out of our government and I'm good. But man, that that began a good two weeks of just pure rage of, of anybody of, of that faith. And so, uh, yeah, a weird and really hostile kind of uh, environment to be in when all that was going on at the same time. Um. As you know, I'm so sorry for your experience with that. It's something you and I kind of personally share. But hail your wife. Hail the people that could support you. Hail your community that you came home to. Um, yeah, absolutely. We've kind of touched on it, but I do want to take a moment to specifically ask what the most difficult experience that you had with that community was and how exactly you responded to it at the time. Not how you would respond to it now necessarily. I know for me, um, being told that I was the reason my brother had passed was really devastating and I was not allowed to go to his funeral. And so I got extremely angry. I raged and I burned a few bridges I probably could have saved otherwise. Um, and I wasn't there for my brother like I should have been. My other, my brother that did survive, I, I should have been there for him more. And that's something that I still hold to today. Um, but I got angry. That, that was my experience with it. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and pass it off to Minister Renard, however, so you can talk about your toughest experience with your community. Thank you. My community. I think the biggest thing that I struggled with was how many people wanted to know what happened and how many people wanted to know how she died. And I didn't know. It took over six months for the medical examiners to get back to me with the actual cause of death. That was six months of only being able to guess of only thinking well maybe it was this maybe it was this i don't know when i found her she had been down for hours and having to tell these people who are very scientifically minded who are analytic, who know how medical science works, that the medical examiner doesn't know what killed her yet and is taking this long. And having to keep telling people that. Because, one, they absolutely had a right to know. This was a friend. This was a loved one. You... When something like this happens, especially when there's no warning, you want to know what happened. And it was six months for the medical examiner to get back to me and said, oh, it was heart problems. We found heart disease and enlarged heart. That 
that was kind of when everyone in the community was just as angry as I was that it took that long to get an answer. But yeah. That's, and that's really tough, especially like you said, with such an analytical and scientific community, we don't often think about that as a negative in any way. So that's definitely very unique. Thank you for pointing it out. Um, Minister David, would you like to go ahead with kind of your hardest experience in regards to your community? Yeah. Um, so and I touched a bit upon it, you know, both with my introduction and, and the last question, but the hardest part and the hardest challenge, at least when I initially read these questions and talked about it with you, um, was being around the people that I was. I mean, these are family members that wouldn't go visit my dad when he was sick, when he called. These are people that didn't have anything to do with us. But now that he's gone, they're there to ask her questions about who's paying for things. And they're there to sell his house and get rid of all this stuff. And you put their hand on my shoulder and tell me how this is all great. Um, you know, that's that to me was the biggest challenge. I just wanted to go home. Like once I got to see him and, and I made it through that and I kind of knew what was happening with his remains, um, I just wanted to go home and be with my dogs and be with my community here and in my friends online. And um, I felt like I kept getting pulled to stay a day longer because more family was coming. And I'm trying to fight this urge to just scream at everybody because I know like, hey, you know, I felt like this weird pressure to to kind of bow to them in a way because I think my dad would want me to do that or something. And I don't know what I think my dad would have just let me do whatever I wanted to do. And if I made a scene, he would have just apologized for me. But um, so, yeah, just going home. And then, you know, I thought about it this morning when I was kind of recalling our discussion about what the challenge was. I didn't really grow up with a mom or anything. So I only had my dad. And I think another challenge I didn't really think about was like, how am I supposed to continue without the person that you, know, you only have two people that love you from the moment you're born, right? Like, how are you supposed to keep going on without that person? So I think those are the the challenges that I've had. Yeah, and those are those are definitely something that we don't think about facing until we have to. So thank you for sharing your pain with us and for taking a moment. Hail both of my panelists today. Hail the people we've all lost. So compassion and empathy, these are things that a lot of us already struggle with. There's a reason it's one of our tenants and there's a reason we all reference back to it. It's because some, it's something we strive for. So with it already being something that a lot of people struggle with, during times of great stress, it gets a little bit harder. So did you find a way to feel compassion and empathy for either yourself or someone else during this time? I feel like this is where grief slips into the complicated zone and it's relevant to look at and to think about because the compassion and empathy that we feel for the people around us changes things. For myself, I didn't feel a lot of compassion and empathy for anyone, really, for a really long time. I was really angry. And the only person that I felt a genuine like connection to or care for for a, probably a couple of weeks at least was the brother that I had living with me and my brother's daughter, my niece. But with her being, you know, itty bitty, it was a little bit harder to feel for her in that regard. Um, 
But the compassion and empathy was definitely lacking until I started getting really involved with my local community here again. When I threw myself into TST, when I started finding people around me that believe the same kind of things I did and really attached to them, that was when my compassion and empathy started to be there and be present. But I'm going to go ahead and pass this off to uh, Minister David, I believe. Um, so if you want to go ahead and talk about compassion and empathy, feel free. Yeah, sure. Uh, so one of the things that I tried to make sure that I had once my dad had passed away and I kind of got over the initial cry is I, uh, I downloaded Shiva Honey's uh, The Devil's Death book to my Kindle and I made sure that every day that I was at the hotel that I made sure that I ate three meals or two meals at least. I made sure that I go to the gym just to have some kind of self-compassion because I knew that if I get sick or something happens to me, not only, you know, is it just adding on to everyone else's thing, but, it, you know, this is not, you know, the kind of memory I want my dad to have. You know, if, you know, I don't really believe in an afterlife, but my dad believes on through me, so I have to at least keep going for him. Um. As far as compassion for others, I mean, the the one moment that I kind of remember this morning was going through my dad's belongings and kind of sorting out what we would donate and what I actually wanted to keep. One of the things that I found was my grandfather's um, folded flag from his military funeral uh, from being in the army. And uh, I grabbed it immediately. I loved my grandfather and my, you know, my dad owned it. So I, I, I had it, I put it into the car and my aunt who I don't get along with at all, um, she's asked, Hey, have you seen my dad's flag? I, you know, I would really like to have that. And despite everything that I was feeling at the time, I just thought about, well, no, she lost her dad. I've just lost mine. I can't keep it. So, uh, to our car and I gave it to her and I just told her I'd forgotten that I packed it up, but I didn't have to do it. And I didn't really want to do it, but I just thought at the time, like, try to be a good Satanist at the very least, you know? Um, so that was about the only compassion I think I had the whole time I was there, though. You say only compassion, but hail you for that. That is phenomenal and amazing to hear about. Uh, so my my heart goes out to you for that. But more than that, I am as little or as much as it means. That moment makes me proud to be a Satanist. So hail you. Um, can we go ahead and Renard, if you want to answer now? Sure, thanks. Um, showing compassion and empathy. Well, the first several days, all I showed was shock. I, I couldn't think. I couldn't make decisions. I Choices were just about impossible. I almost didn't have a viewing. Because it was just no, this this is wrong. This is this can't have happened. This this the world can't be moving forward. And how, when you're lost in those feelings, can you actually show compassion or empathy? Because you just don't know what to do. And then there was a friend who said, hey, I, I need to see her to say goodbye. It, I, 
it doesn't feel real, and I'm afraid it will never feel real if I don't get to see her to say goodbye. And I had a choice. And like I said, I, I wasn't very good with choices, but this one was a choice between staying clenched up and broken and being kind. And I didn't know who I was going to be going forward. I didn't know what to do with my life. My partner had passed away, but I did know that I would not regret choosing to be kind. And so I did. And... When the next opportunity came up and I saw that I had choices, I could remember to choose to be kind. When I wrote the eulogy, I'm sorry, when I wrote the obituary, we don't do eulogies. <laughs> uh that was another point where I had a, a choice to make because there was a good chunk of her family that had no idea she had anything to do with Satanism. This was a whole new thing to them, and I was ready to write out an obituary that was just plain and neutral and kind, but false. And that was where I had to choose who to be kind to. Do I decide to hide things and be kind to her family? Or do I decide to be honest and be kind to the community? As anyone who might have read that obituary knows for certain... I chose the community, and it burned some bridges. There were family members that they couldn't handle it. They couldn't accept it, and they didn't come to any services. They never did say goodbye, and I wanted to be angry at them, but really, I just felt bad for them. That wasn't worth getting angry at. If your ignorance leaves you in a place where you're so distraught and offended that you don't want to take the one chance to say goodbye to your sister, that's pity. I'm sorry, what was the question? It's totally fine. This is a really difficult topic, I know. Um, the question was, did you find a way to feel compassion and empathy for either yourself or someone else? Thank you. Uh, compassion for myself took a very long time. I found it a lot easier to be compassionate for everybody else. Because 
like I said, I didn't know who I was. I was broken. There were pieces of myself everywhere. And I didn't know how to go forward. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know how to answer or respond to anything. So I play a lot of role-playing games, like a lot. And I sat down with a journal and I wrote out who I would be proud to be in a couple of years. And I just wrote words, kind, sarcastic, smart-ass, loving, compassionate, trustworthy. And I built that image of this person and said, okay, I'm going to make decisions based on what that guy would do. Because this guy's a fucking mess. He's not going anywhere. He's not able to do anything. But that guy, well, I can figure out what that person would do. Was it weird? Did it work all the time? No. No, there was many times where it's just, nope, I'm going to go shut down and get extraordinarily drunk. But I also listened. And I listened to my friends and I listened to my family. And I believed them when they said that I was going to get through this, that they were there for me. And enough of them said that, that I finally started listening and believing. And once I asked myself, do I trust these people who are telling me these things? I realized, yeah, I do trust them. I care for them. Maybe I should believe them and start practicing. And that was when I started to figure out how to Forgive myself for things I couldn't even do anything about. I definitely feel like that's something that we all struggle with, is that forgiveness aspect. There's a bit of survivor's guilt that kind of lives within all of us that makes it really difficult to look at things moving forward. But you're right. We can be kind. And I think that's a really good point that we should all kind of stop and take a moment to breathe and really think about. We can be kind and we can choose to be kind and we can choose to be kind even when we don't feel like we should or can. We can be proud of our kindness and moving forward, we can make that decision ourselves. But always remember that you get to choose who to be kind to as well. My last question for tonight or this morning for some of us would be what was your biggest hurdle? when it came to healing and what was the moment when you realized that you were starting to heal for myself I know that I didn't think I would ever recover or that I would ever be okay again and then my at the time fiance and now my wife uh she lost her grandfather and his funeral was the anniversary of my brother's death and It felt different and it hit me different because I realized all of a sudden I wanted to be there for this person. I wanted to love her. I wanted to stand with her and I wanted to go with her and support her as her family continued to isolate and ostracize her and as she made these tough decisions and as she had to 
deal with and really experience this horrible loss, I wanted to help her. And it was really that moment when I stopped feeling sorry for myself. And I started thinking, how can I take this awful pain that I feel and do something that will help someone else? And it started with my wife and I have since, at least I hope, utilized my experiences to help better the people around me. I'm going to go ahead and pass it off to Minister David, if you'd like to talk about your biggest hurdle to healing and kind of that moment you realized you were starting to heal. For sure. Um, I think the biggest hurdle, I think the biggest hurdle to healing so far has just been missing phone calls and, and things like that that I would normally get or, you know, any kind of special or good occasion, like buying a, a car or something, not immediately crying because you don't get to call your dad or you don't get to call and brag about the cool thing you got or, or the cool thing that just happened. Or I just even miss ignoring the phone calls because I'm busy, honestly. It would just be great to be able to just... Um, I think that the things that kind of helped me at least realize that I'm starting to get back to some semblance of myself is just being able to participate in things I like again without just being depressed about it. I mean, my TST congregation is, uh, they're basically my family. I love these people more than I've ever loved people that I'm related to. Um, being able to focus on that, even if just to take my mind off of it, um, started gaming again. My wife is just, like I said, it has been a rock for me the entire time, meeting awesome people like Phil. I mean, I met them two weeks after getting back from Georgia. And so I think we spent two hours just kind of trauma dumping with each other and talking about video games and that conversation, whether it was a big deal to them or not, was a major deal to me, even if I didn't realize it at the time. So, um, you know, it's it's been a couple of months. I don't think that it's ever going to go away all the way, but I definitely think that I'm on the road to healing, you know, if I haven't gotten across the rivers, I'm at least on the right road, so... And sometimes that's all that matters. So hail you, David. And while I would never recommend trauma dumping with anybody, unless you absolutely have to, I do want to state I loved our first conversation. I'm really, really grateful that you're in my life and that we've gone through this together. So hail you. I'm going to go ahead and pass it off to Renard if you want to talk about your healing and your hurdle to healing. Well, first off, I, I'd like to disagree. Trauma dumping can be a great way to get a gauge of somebody's character. I mean, and I know there's enough gamers out there that everybody loves a tragic backstory. Uh, but actual relevant comment on hurdles. I think the biggest hurdle I had was trying to bargain and trying to get past that struggle of realizing I'm never going to see her again. That, that was the biggest hurdle. Just... Because I'd spent 22 years of my life with her. No, I spent 22 years of my life dating her, 
We'd been friends for years before that. I'd known her over half my life. And we had gone through some shit together. And so much of my life, it was lost. All the inside jokes we had, all those shared experiences, good and bad, that were ours, well, now they were just mine. And that person I wanted to share them with was gone. Our plans to build a retirement home where everybody would be playing online games and smoking weed all day. It's like, okay, that, that's gone. And I found myself living in the past a lot, fantasizing about, ah, if only I could go back to this point or this point or this point and do just one thing different or I could have, I could have been a better guy for her. I, we, we could have done a lot more exercise and we could have realized that the exhaustion she'd been feeling for the last year was heart problems. Just all of these, what if I had done this? What would have happened? How much better would it have been? And I wasn't looking forward. There, there wasn't anything I could see to look forward to. How I started working past this, the first steps, the first steps I took with my, with the memorial. Um, it's in the archives. Spoke with a lot of her friends, a lot of her loved ones in the TST community. And I shared my grief with them. I I told them it was okay to hurt. I told them it was okay to hurt around me. And that my grief wasn't a competition. I I knew no one there was hurting more than I did, but I didn't need to prove that. And nobody asked me to. And I just started doing things that she would have wanted done, that I know she would have wanted to see happen. I, I took care of her people. I... I made sure that her night was okay and stable. Um, made sure people were there for him. And I wanted to help people grieve because the more I saw other people grieving, the more I knew how real she was 
and how much of a difference she made and how much of an impact she made and how many people's lives besides mine were better for having her in it. And I'm that started the healing process that 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 helped that got me stepping away from the brink of the void so to speak gave me gave me things to look forward to now when did i know i was doing better that's your fault phil I was at SatanCon in Boston, and this very kind lady I knew had reached out to me asking if I'd be willing to speak with her fiancé, and I had no idea what about, just that it was important and that there was a little bit of hero worship, and then... Ash Phoenix introduced me to her fiance, Fel Faraway, and Fel couldn't speak for a while, which was cute as hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fuck you too. Uh, but here's Fel talking to me about how everything I'd recorded and being so open and honest and raw with my grief had let her know this this is this is what people feel that it is normal to grieve it is normal to hurt like hell it is normal to not be able to make decisions it's not normal to have to fight your family it's not normal to have to deal with that pain on top of everything else. But that was that was when I started. That was when it was really I was able to take a step back and go, I'm doing okay. Yeah, I'm going to hand this back to you now. Well, I'm still red. <laughs> um, and I do want to state that the level of impact that you can have with a person sometimes you don't know you don't know how much you can help or change somebody just by having a conversation both of the wonderful ministers i have here with me tonight have helped me in my healing journey and healing process and if you are not sure what to do next or where to go, or how to feel, you don't have to. But as we said earlier in the night, you can make the decision to be kind, and you will never fully understand the gravity or depth of that decision. I do want to take a moment for all of us, for those in the audience, those listening after this has been recorded, for those of us here tonight, I want to take a moment and think back on 
whatever happy memory first comes to your head, whatever thing you're feeling or thinking, and just take a moment of silence and enjoy the emotion that comes with it, even if it hurts a little bit afterwards. So if everyone will join me. I know this has been difficult for all of us here recording. I know it's been difficult for a few people out there. I know I know how much it can hurt. And you're not alone. No one really is, whether we feel it or not. I feel like David and I tonight had both kind of expressed that. But it does look like our hour is starting to come to a close. We have a little bit of extra time. So I'm going to let Renard jump in for just a brief moment. Maybe I'll be jumping in. Okay, there we go. So we have a little time left. And I'm going to take advantage of that and share some stuff with the audience and then invite Ministers Fell and David to do the same. Thinking of one memory and holding it in your head and enjoying the feelings that come with that, I want to share them. Because I had two that came screaming into my head. One community-related, one absolutely nothing to do with DST. The community-related one, we had a saying. And it was from the very early days of TST. When the going gets tough, the tough go ass. And Larissa picked that up from one of the bad translations of someone telling Lucian in Portuguese, Satan get thee behind me. But the translator popped it through, and said, Satan, you go ass. And this is one of those treasured early TST moments that I wanted to share. Larissa decided she wanted to preserve that, so she translated that into Latin. And every time we made a construction, every time we had an art piece somewhere on it or inside it, was written, when the going gets tough, the tough go ass. The second one is purely a video game nerd thing when she roasted me so fucking hard. We were playing the online RPG called City of Heroes, and there was a group of friends, and we got together, and we role-played, and we loved it, and it was amusing. And she and I made a pair of characters to level up together. And we're having a chat because over there is one of our friends and their sidekick because they played together with sidekicks. And I said, in character, I want a sidekick. And without missing a beat, Larissa's tune turned to me and said... 
Sidekicks don't get sidekicks. She heard me screaming across the house, and I heard her laughing her ass off, and we were done for the day. It was too much. It was too funny. But that, that is the memory that I go back to. That is my treasured memory. That is what never fails to make me smile. That is epic in so many ways. Um, we do still have a little time. Mr. David, did you want to share your memory that you go back to? Yeah, for sure. Um I'm going to remember both of those forever now. Um, so the memory I think about with my dad is, it probably wasn't a great moment for him, but it was amazing for us. And it's the thing that kind of always keeps me laughing. Uh, we come, we went up to Gatlinburg, Tennessee uh, for kind of Oktoberfest. And there was a white water rafting that you could do. Where you kind of just get in the inner tube and kind of just float on uh, just a big circle, you know, with a hole in the middle, those big donut ones. And so, I remember my dad being a bigger guy at the time and I'm young and able to move. I'm not old, you know, stiff and old like I am now, but uh, I'm floating down on, on the, on the inner tube that I've got. And I look back and my dad is struggling to kind of get into it. And he's cussing up a storm and his cigars in his hand. And he's just cussing saying, he's not going to do this. And within about three or four minutes, I hear a plunging sound and I look at my, my dad's ass up. Boxers down, uh, uh, swim trunks down, ass in the air, struggling to kind of get back up. And the moment he caught a breath of air, it was just a stream of cussing that I, up until that point, had never heard before, especially from him. And uh, I kind of just think about that every once in a while just to kind of make me laugh. If I'm going to think about him, I'm going to think about him mooning the entire city of Gatlinburg, Tennessee. So, yeah, that's, that's awesome. Um, for my part on it, my brother was a huge goofball, and he was this big, tall, burly guy. And uh, he, <laughs> we had our other brother's son, my nephew, who was over, and we were trying to spend time together. And it, I don't know how it got brought up, but it got found out that I had never seen, uh, what is it, Space Jams, the... Yeah, I think it was called Space Jams. And I'd never seen it. And my, like, six-foot-four, burly, big, wearing his tank top and basketball shorts brother looked at me and went, you've never seen this? Sprinted faster than I've ever seen a man of his size able to sprint all the way to the back bedroom so he could grab it. And he came back and he said, we're going to watch this. I'm like, I don't want to watch it. I don't like movies. He's like, no, we're going to watch it. And if you don't want to watch it, I'm going to sit on you. And I sat down and watched the movie quietly. And that was that was my brother. Um, but it does look like with that, our hours together is starting to come to an end, uh, which I'm sure there's a part of us all that is a little bit grateful for that. So being able to step back from something like grief or pain, it can be a really overwhelming thing. And it's incredibly important for each and every one of us to be able to do that. I, for one, think that this hour, or with this hour at the very forefront of my mind, it, it's been enough time. Sometimes it's great to sit and share. Sometimes it's also good to step back. So to all my panelists and my audience today, I do want to say 
Hail those we've lost, hail those we still have. Hail ourselves. And I'm gonna leave you with the thought that it is important to take time for yourself in the coming hours, the coming days, the coming months, to really validate your own emotions and to be kind to yourself. Remember that your life is just as important as anyone else's. Remember that your emotions are important. And remember that your needs can supersede another's desire or want. You can take care of yourself. And with that, I would like to go ahead and end this service with one more, as loud as we all can, hail. So take a time to reflect today. And I want to express gratitude to all of those that we hold dear. So Ave Satanis.